All right, James and Caitlin, good to have you here. I have a chance to talk about Sylvia Winter and Alibal Cajano. Um, I was really excited about this material. I, you know, I think that Sylvia Winter has become, um, in a good way, a, a sort of trending uh, theorist. And so it's good to sit down and, and talk about her ideas. Uh, but also to have a chance to introduce Anibal Quijano, whose work I think is really criminally underread. Uh, he's an, a really interesting theorist, but, um, you know, I just think it's true that, that Latin American critical theory just does not get very much attention. And it's, it's something that I haven't corrected as much as maybe I would have wanted, uh, wanted to in a, um, different semester. But, uh, I think Quijano is a nice intervention here. And part of what I wanted to do with these pieces, and I pair them uh, very uh, deliberately, is out of uh, winter to get a chance for us to talk about Franz Fanon, because uh, Toward the Sociogenic Principle is an essay on Fanon, and so you really, in some ways, uh, get all the quoted passages you need in analysis, a very faithful treatment, I think, of Fanon. But it also gets us into this space of understanding the stakes of theorizing subjectivity. And so her citations of, of you know, Thomas Nagel and David Chalmers and others is such a, for me, such a, such an eclectic citation practice. And we talked about that, or I talked about that in class, um, seemed to have struck everybody else as well. Mm. Uh, but for me, it's really, I think, one of the things that exposes, and she's very subtle about it, is how the idea of subjectivity being contained within the boundaries of consciousness or mm. being debated in terms of the relationship between consciousness and the brain betrays a kind of colonial privilege. And not privilege in the sense of like, you know, a thing we should all aspire to, but a sort of colonial perspective, I think maybe is a better way to put it. Um, because what it would mean to think about colonized subjectivity or, or subaltern um, uh, communities and subjects and their formation as, as subjects and people on the model of consciousness and the brain would really be to take the sort of things that, that subaltern uh, communities struggle with as somehow in, uh, inherent in their very structure of consciousness. And so I like that framing. It's not really the framing of our course, but I think it's an important thing to sort of detect in our everyday language, as well as I think any other kinds of, um, uh, con you know, any other kinds of courses or readings where people really do think of subjectivity as having a, a deeply self-contained dimension. And I like to pair that idea of the sociogenic principle with the colonial of power essay of Quijano because what the colonial power, coloniality of power essay does for me in such interesting ways is get us to see how the dualisms or binary structures that make colonialism work, that, that colonialism invents in order to make it cohere as a system actually come into play in our own languages of, of liberation or our own languages of, of struggle and resistance. And so thinking about the strategies of liberation being not just, you know, sort of fucking with these binaries in order to change their dynamic, instead thinking about that as the object of critique. So that to me is what's so interesting because it also goes into what is, you know, 
you know, how the sociogenic principle actually functions in ways that keeps that those binaries and those dualisms in place. And also, I'll say just uh, it's the beginning motif of the essay, and he comes back to it at, at various points. But I also really like his uh, argument about the invention of race, that the invention of race was really a way of securing the naturalness of these binary and dualistic systems, that, that race was not just a sort of matter of prejudice or an encounter with strangeness that renders that strangeness abject, but instead that that uh, race uh, was is 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 a centerpiece of, of how the system holds together, not a crucial element, but a, a, a foundation piece that allows it to hold together. What that means we do with the question of race, I think, is complicated. But I just like that he he for me. He makes me hesitate around a lot of the language that I use uh, around things like revolutionary rhetoric, around forms of resistance, about what liberation would look like. And I, I really, I feel like he sticks in my conscience and, and, and makes it hard for me sometimes to talk, right? I catch myself stuck in those binaries that he's suggesting actually maintain the coloniality of power. So that was sort of where I you know, why, where I come into this material. And for me, it's, you know, it's a continuing conversation about the sort of tension between, you know, European theory, um, and, and subalternity, um, around, uh, absences, but really around this question of like, you know, is the world as we know it for all of its structures that we would want to critique, you know, do we, can we even operate inside this world with a vision of liberation? Or does the world have to emerge something completely unimaginable, getting back in some ways to spillers, but here put out instead of at the level of, of conceptual discourse around race and gender, now about the, the world system of political economy. So I'll stop there. Um, I'm curious uh, what you all uh, thought of the material, things that struck you. Maybe start with you, James. Yeah. Um, no, this is great. And uh, I mentioned a few things in our during our class session. Um, but even as you were just giving that brief recap, I think I, I keep coming back to this question of, of nature, which is something we didn't talk too much about in class. Uh, and I think ideas of the human, um, because that was something that really stuck out to me, you know, trying to connect these these two readings is just i think yeah i think the question of you know what is the the human and like if the human is based on um especially like a racialized subject is based on this um hierarchy of value and like the way he describes this unique moment of layering all of these elements like at this historical moment all of these elements are layered um on top of one another simultaneously that it makes it challenging mm -hmm. to actually find a way to intervene in that um in that system um if that makes sense and it makes me think of um some other recent scholarship uh, about this um particularly zakia jackson's book on becoming human which i'm slowly working mm -hmm. through but it's it's one that's that it gets at this idea of like the human or actually like blackened flesh like people black people um the notion of them uh, of that category developing alongside 
questions of of the animal, and so that those two things、mm-hmm. are like bound up. And I think Kihana was pointing to this、um, tension a lot in saying, in pointing to nature and saying that there are these layered things around.、Um, uh, Like the hierarchy of 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 black subjects being closer to nature and therefore inferior, and so you know th- those、mm. things. I think, yeah, basically just just starting out with with a few unrelated thoughts,、um, but but I think somehow that that connects winter and Kihano in interesting ways. Yeah, I like that, Caitlin. Yeah, I like that a lot. I definitely know winter is definitely. When she talks about like what it is to be human, the overrepresentation of men, she is thinking about、um, blackness in relation to like animality, which I think like I'm really glad that you brought up that point. But what really、um, struck me between these two pieces, and especially in relation to our class,、um, was、uh, these how nations outside the United States、uh, kind of have these narratives about race.、Um, And how, like, how even though the seeds of these nations are still like anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity,、um, and that's what they're organizing these new quote-unquote nations on, is that their investment in these ideas of a multiracial populace, a multiracial people, and that these narratives often are crafted an aesthetic and image rather than like a way of being or a way of life, and that. And that shows up when we see how these nations don't really know what to do、uh, when, like these forms of mixture, quote unquote, don't produce the image that we that they want them to produce.、Um, both narratively and how like we relate to the other, and also like I'm think I'm thinking about the difference between、um, Keanu's、uh, description versus Glissant's、uh, thinking about like mixing versus like living alongside each other.、Mm-hmm. Um, in relation to obviously like this geneal genealogical terror、uh, that comes with the legacy of slavery, so I was really interested in that. And when Winter goes into、um, when she when she describe when she goes into how Fanon describes like when he's called like when he when he when he when he fit when he、uh, when he steps into being other like there's this image of like placelessness. And or like he crafts this image of like this placelessness of being like this surreal experience. I guess I guess I'm really I guess it was really really striking how、uh, this the I think she uses like that di- the dialectic of like the other like in these accounts.、Um, I don't know I don't know how to describe it, but it's really interesting like.、Uh, How like the how these narratives are aimed towards an aesthetic and an and an image,、uh, rather than being and、uh, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's interesting to talk about that sort of the that sort of detachment from the world,、mm-hmm. right? As you called it like surreal, right?、Mm-hmm. That sort of exiting the world that Fanon and Winter through Fanon talks about the experience of blackness in the anti-black world. That that exists alongside, if both Kihano and and Fanon slash Winter are describing experiences correctly, alongside what you had mentioned before, James, which is this、um, this argument about proximity to nature, right,、mm. of being like less than human precisely because of closeness to nature, 
But in that weird way that, you know, combined, I think those two arguments describe a world in which nature is not a part of the world at some level, right? That nature is outside the world. Mm. And so what is the world, right. right? If it's not nature, right, which is now made into this sort of abject identity, um, and it's not whatever happens to black people, you know, when they're, you know, when they're slurred on the, the on the subway, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The Fanon piece. Um, and, you know, I changed the syllabus, of course, so we're not going to read uh, uh, Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. But this really, it, this makes for, I think, a really interesting, um, you know, sort of link or segue where, where Adorno and Horkheimer, their argument is that modernity so it comes about in this moment of mechanizing nature, mm. right? So that 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 this this sense of of nature as something to be pushed aside for this sort of broad world of of human construction, right? right? And now we can sort of see in both of these pieces, as, you know, I'm thinking of yeah. uh, both of your comments about nature and about about this sort of surreal detachment, the way in which that creates a space where you know there is no nature and there is no black people, right? Yeah, <laughs> the, you know adds yeah. a very disposition of creating whatever modernity has made quote of the world yeah because wow. that also points to what kihano's talking about about the like the layerings of like racialized labor and the economic system of like the surf you know when he's talking about the surf the, the that transition from the plantation mm -hmm. economy to a surf economy mm -hmm. um and pointing across all of these different historical um, moments in time um, and it also is you know like Caitlin's point around um, what you just mentioned and also in, in class um, I think you're pointing to like the limits of representation to a certain extent mm -hmm. and I think about this with Kihano's discussion of racial democracy um, to say yeah. that like representational politics still can somehow reproduce um, these colonial like structures and logics um, because mm -hmm. it is because it is layered in, in this way I mean I guess in this particular context he's talking about Latin America um, and Brazil and, and sort of thinking about that idealized notion of racial mixture that is somehow shown as like a possible future that could be liberatory but is actually based in certain similar um, forms of coloniality. Um, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm. But but that like, yeah, it's kind of layered onto these these deep historical structures that he's pointing to, which I think are are really useful. Um, and I hadn't thought, you know, obviously that might be a piece to read in the future to think about the mechanization of. Um, of the economy because you know he starts by framing it as like yeah. the moment of globalization which is like a later historical mm. moment so we're kind of like in that complex yeah. question right now in our mm. contemporary moment but um yeah and, and i think what you were saying james that that's part of what i like about the word coloniality mm. you know it's 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 a word i still don't use very often um, just because that doesn't sort of roll off my sort of tongue spontaneously, but I think it's powerful because it's like the coloniality of these things that are liberatory, mm -hmm. right? And you know, when I think about you know racialized democracy, 
um, you know, the, um, and I don't know where to go with this. So, you know, where, you know, what the alternative is. And I don't think either Winter Fanon or, or Keanu do either, but it's like that the idea of like a racial democracy, you know, the coloniality of that is the naturalization of racial categorization in our political discourse. Mm. And once you make it naturalized, it's like we have to operate with that language. But what, what that holds in it is as much as we may move the pieces around with racialized democracy, you know, toward democracy rather than, you know, racialized tyranny, which has been the history of the, of the modern world, um, I do think we see, you know, not to be overly like, hey, living in 2023, <laughs> but we see the way that, that language that have been this moment of liberation in terms of everything from like libraries and, and you know, school curricula, all of a sudden the naturalization of those terms and the fact that we had negotiated this different social relationship on those same terms, right? Now those terms can also just be reassembled and retrogre retrogress or regress so quickly mm, mm -hmm. and you know i don't know quite what to do with that because it's like you know i like the sort of slow decolonization of our curriculum right the 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 multiple perspectives you know multiplicity of of historical experiences but the way that gets dialed back so fast because the terms of relationship are so naturalized and not contested yeah that's a that's a hard one for me because I'm also not somebody who's out here saying like you know I don't see race, mm -hmm. right? so it's, so it's not like a you know it's a it's not a rhetoric problem it's a mm. it's a political imagination right, problem. Right. Mm. Yeah, he talks about men mentality or mental yeah. construction. Yeah. yeah, mental construction. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I said, I know I said it in class, I'll say it again. That's why I like the fact that he says mental, right, rather than imaginary when he assigns mm. it to race. Because that idea of a mentality is a complete and total comportment, right? It's like your whole body and, and, and intellect are oriented in the world a certain way. Mm. Whereas if it's imaginary, we can always stop imagining things. But a full comportment, I mean, that's like not to make it too mundane but that's like trying to change a habit yeah it's really hard to change a habit yeah think about right. if you've ever tried to get something out of your speech pattern like stop saying like or something. <laughs> it's just it's just the effort it takes to change even the the least provocative or deeply rooted senses of our comportment it's just like a massive task now to think about about dismantling our comportment around the entire naturalization of our of our social, cultural, and political categories. Um, but it's also not about us. That's, I think that's, again, that's what I like about the sociogenic principle mm -hmm. essay, is just that very idea of sociogeny places us back in a different world, precisely because we're not in a world of, of, of liberal subjects, mm -hmm. right, who are, who are who are negotiating their vocabularies and changing them. It's about like, a, you know, the structure of a, of a society that's at this point over 500 years old around the naturalization of race as the centerpiece or foundation of political discourse. Now, how do we think our way out of that? It's not, it's not, it's a thinking problem, but it's a praxis problem. It's like, how is theory embedded in our practices and our everydayness? Yeah. And, I think it was in the winter piece where 
I well, I think that that goes into like how when it comes to the sociogenic principle, how Fanon describes it as first and third person experience. Mm-hmm. When winter involves like this neuroscience, this like uh, like in, involving the body into that experience. Um, like I feel like it turns like the placelessness into I don't know what I I I just think it's interesting how she she's saying that the body also comes with you. Um, in these and these encounters of uh, racialized violence, and um, and thinking about the like how obviously the body keeps score, but I, I guess I, I guess I was, I was thinking about that comment what you just said about like the imagination and um, how Fanon like knows like he feels his racism and though and therefore he knows his race like knows his his blackness he knows his blackness so i don't know where i was going with this but i just really like that um that comment they just said and also about the okay but also i had a question from class about like memory mm-hmm. and um how does memory come into play when we are imagining uh these the black futurity um like do we have to forget like and I also know that some forms of historical amnesia can also again reproduce these forms of anti-blackness, as Kiono states, um, within within the reading. So I was wondering where does memory have a place within our political imagination? Because um, even like this, like the representation of uh, this, like the the multiracial, the quote unquote mestiz- mestizo image has traces of blackness, and that is. Like, but that's still like a form of anti-blackness. So I'm still wondering, like, where does where do these things have like a place, uh, or like where are the pockets? <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's difficult. You know, to the extent that certainly winter, but maybe um, in a significant way, also Kihano is a Fanonian. I mean, Fanon does say at the end of Black Skin, White Masks, you know, I'm not in search of reparations. I'm not a slave to history, right? I want to ask, I want to be a man who questions, right? I want to, mm. I want to be a different kind of human. And I think that's, that's an interesting thing for me about apocalyptic visions in general, because mm. I think both Keanu and Winter, are, in the end, it's an apocalyptic discourse. It's yeah. about like the, this, mm. our, the natural, the naturalized discourse uh, that we have for all things about liberation and historical dead and justice are the very things that, that reproduce or at least open up the possibility of the reproduction of, of the very thing one's trying to overcome. But, you know, the thing about apocalypse, you know, just think about, you know, the f- story of the flood in the Hebrew Bible. I mean, the thing that's always struck me about that story, and I remember reading it when um, when I was in college, I, I hadn't read the, uh, I hadn't grown up in a religious uh, family at all. And I was like, well, what about all those people who died? Mm. You know, I mean, they, they, what about their lives? What yeah. about their legacies? What about their, you know, and, and it was sort of like, you know, of course, Jesuit theologians, <laughs> so they're like, yes, but it's really about the ideas of new beginnings or something like that. Right. right? But, I mean, I think it's similar here where it's like, what about all those people who struggled to stay alive, right? Yeah. That enslaved people could have chosen death and they chose life. And then now you're like, well, let's throw away that memory in the name of a new humanism 
and a new idea of the human, a new idea of social relation. I'm quite, I've never quite known what to do yeah. with those two things. Cause like Caitlin, you mm-hmm. were saying like the pull of memory and sort of justice and obligation to that memory mm-hmm. is real. Yeah. But I also think there's something so compelling about this claim that, you know, we have to overcome naturalized dualisms and binaries mm-hmm. in order to have a different world. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, James? No, I think it's a great line of thinking. And I, yeah, as you were talking and both of you, I was thinking about, you know, this focus on what the consciousness is, you know, why focus on that? Mm. And so I would say, like, what is the relationship between memory and consciousness and like the imagination and memory? So that's sort of what I've been thinking about, which is like, there is no... Like, if we tried to trace the material of memory, we'd run into the same problem as trying to document what consciousness is. But like, what, you know, mm. which is what sort of Winters is, is getting at, I think, in some ways. Um, and so that makes me think about, like, what you're saying, Caitlin, about we carry things with us. Like, I think the memories are, you like, are carried with... Like we carry the memories with us through consciousness and also through the narratives that we tell, which are like an attempt at sort of representing one's consciousness and one's memory, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Which is why I think it's interesting that she focuses so much on, or she focuses on language and like, I mentioned this in class, but like the idea of qualia and like how do objects, like how do we have mm-hmm. yeah. common language for objects, which says something about you know differences in perception between like you know what is redness does red in here in like an actual thing or is it only in the objects that it's connected to um mm-hmm. and i think from a position of like the 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 kind of apocalyptic vision of like being outside of the social order of humanity like i think like the chain of being if if people have never been part of that world then i think that's kind of the question around the the radical alternative which is to be like kind of foregoing humanity right to say there's something beyond humanism that is in a reproduction of the idea of the human um that might be rooted in, you know, your relationship to bats or dolphin, or, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like the people that like, you know, the Drexia folk who were, you know, the enslaved people who um, went off, like threw themselves off the, um, the ships during the middle passage and now are like amphibian mm-hmm. underwater creatures is like, that's mm. that's some that's something right like but again that's like in a sort of imaginative world but i think it's connected to a sense of like the tension and the being pres- prescribed or prescripted within or circumscribed within like these same logics of humanism to be like i need to be of this category in order to be recognized mm-hmm. as human I think the alternative is just to say, like, well, 
destroy that category of the human and build something different, which is obviously difficult, but like, I think that's sort of what they're um, turning to in terms of like the, the rhetoricity of whatever ident human um, identity. Yeah, and I was thinking a lot about how you pointed into uh, the part where she talks about like what happens when we see and hear mm -hmm. like red or redness. And then I was thinking about, I forgot where, I think it was a class I took on like um, ecological imagination in the Americas about like what if like, like, cause again, red is like violence, anger, and then green, we think of green as like nature and like serenity and like, whatever and like what would happen if we thought like red was like nature and all that stuff but i don't know that's cool yeah is that good i was like oh yeah 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 i didn't think of it's like man that's tough yeah i was thinking about like what um well like i was like that brought i guess like your comment brought that up like what if like it was flipped but it's not just about like flipping uh are we assigning uh the imagination that comes with or the narratives that come with these like colors or even obviously as uh, subjects of black like blackness like i guess it's just yeah i don't know <laughs> but yeah and i think about um i think about the uh, this phrase because i and it's not my area of study so um i could completely miss entire <laughs> scholarly commentary on this but um you know this this term which has now been around for for a couple decades of the post-human oh, yeah. i think it's really interesting because i think the way the post the way the post-human that phrase resonates for me is thinking the human differently but i think one of the thing one of the things that, that for me comes in light of kihano but especially in light of winter and and fanon um, what comes for me with the post-human is also the post-animal because the animal is only the animal because of the human. Mm. That's the binary. That's the dualism that structures modernity, right? Is that, that you generate the, con the, the category animality because you've generated the category humanity. So the post-human Right, ends up being something beyond the animal, or at least possibly behind or beyond the animal um, uh, human binary and the dualism of that. It's not even a binary, it's a dualism in the sense of it's absolutely different mm -hmm. metaphysical categories. There are mm. moral differences, political differences, and so forth. Um, yeah. But, you know, these, these movements come with a cost, and it's a little bit of a a little bit of a Sophie's choice. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, would you give up like justice for the ancestors for a just future? Yeah. Mm. Right. If you didn't know that justice for the ancestors was going to secure anything other than, you know, more ancestors in the future who need justice. Right. right. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting with the post human because I, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I've read a little bit in this area, but like thinking about that in relation to, um, you know, the historical moment is like this is post-humanism is coming at an era of like the Internet, the burgeoning culture of like the Internet and like this moment of being like, well, we don't need bodies anymore because we can just like yeah. have all this virtual, we can live in virtual reality. Um, but it often like 
obviously reproduces like similar issues um but that like there's a way that like posthumanism and people have critiqued posthumanism for this way but like of it being like disembodied and so yeah i like the post animal because it's like i don't know i mean i think it's a question of, like do we need do humans need to assign value to the world to be significant or can you just like live and not <laughs> you, you know what i mean like like if mm -hmm. if human like do, does there need to be that sharp division between us and bats for example or like i mean um, i don't know maybe this i'm just <laughs> rambling now but but that, I, I like this idea of like thinking about it like why is po the post-humanism now an attractive idea um in relation to like historical development of like technology for example I mean, I think that's, as you were saying, it's like the flexibility of, of identification that comes with, um, you know, what we call like technological expressions of the, of the post-human, um, you know, whether it's sort of chat rooms or social media space or whatever. I mean, I remember when this is like an age thing, but I remember when chat rooms were very, very first a thing and that was you know, as usual, sort of media crazy hyping of like, we are all whatever we want to be or something. Right. But, you know, mm -hmm. if you go into one of these chat rooms and your name is Gloria, you know, you're going to have a bunch of male identified, you know, chats, chat names, you know, harassing mm -hmm. you sexually, yeah. right? And, and then and insulting you or if you have an identifiably, you know, racialized name. You know, like a, a Spanish name and, you know, racial slurs will follow. Mm -hmm. So those fantasies were, I, I think, that sense of the, the post-human, um, you know, we've sort of searched for, you know, is there really a world that's not just a reproduction of that in these spaces? But I was also thinking, especially because you were talking about sort of underwater creatures and, yeah. and fantasy, um, about just the way, you know, for me, the way so much... Uh, recent popular it's just popular journalism so I, you know i'm not like a scientist but popular journalistic reporting on animal intelligence mm -hmm. has had these like weird things like you know that that you know an animal will use scent for thought yeah right that uh, through scent it thinks mm -hmm. and reasons and the way you know i i hear this kind of thing I'm like what but that's the point, right? Yeah. That like, what the, that phrase doesn't make sense. Right. You think through scent. Uh, that's, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But it's exactly that moment that it doesn't make sense because I'm not thinking about myself as like an intellect here, the world, nature over there. And I process, you know, this sort of un understructured nature through my intellect mm -hmm. in the same way that the missionary, you know, takes you know, the too close to nature indigenous or African person and processes them through the intellect to make them closer to human, right? So that the way that, you know, the 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 structure of, of coloniality is also that structure of cognition and encounter with nature. And then all of a sudden, you know, what I'll, I'll put it in quotes, right? Quote the animal, right? Ends up talking about intellect and scent. Right. 
that that mm. scent is thinking and i just yeah. i'm like you mean they think about scent and it's like no they scent. thinking is scent scent is thinking yeah. and those, those those moments i'm like okay this here's where i'm not saying it, it points a path but it's it's where i like discover that moment of i i you know now I see what it would require in my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. What it would require in terms of my speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sense, scent and sensibility. <laughs> <laughs> see, I like that. Yeah. Yes. That's a great that's a great posthuman novel. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I think that's extremely interesting cuz I I do hear common critiques of like how the post-human like refuses the burden of the body and that's like obviously where uh where a lot of the problematic uh like ideas around like oh i'm just gonna be like an avatar or on this virtual realm um and thinking and i i really i really did also like that you brought up like um the sea um uh because i guess i'm thinking it about it in relation to uh, black cosmology in the Caribbean about how like in the United States it's more like the flying Africans and then in the Caribbean it's more like the sea creatures, the mermaids, etc. the sirens and stuff, stuff like that and how those those um, materialities kind of inform our, in our ways of knowing uh, especially in relation to our geographies and it, and, it, and this and this reminded me of a discussion we had after class where it was me Fatima, Kristen, and James about um, well, it was it was in relation to Kihano's uh, account of how nation building or yeah, the nation building within Latin American world versus the Caribbean are completely different, and it might be obviously because Keanu doesn't have access to the other the that other side, uh, the the pockets of black populations within these nations specifically, but also um how in the sea islands of the uh, United States, like the Gullah Geechee Islands, how they also have a similar uh, community and uh, nation building as the Caribbean. And I guess I just wanted to talk more about um, when we were talking about what the difference between uh, Latin American nation building versus the Caribbean. I guess I still have more questions from the class about like, why are these two things so, why are these, why are, like I don't know if it's just like not only language, but uh, like the racial makeup of these uh, nations, or I don't know, like why are they so not so different, but the homogenizations versus the creolization is where I kind of yeah. get lost within yeah. this piece. Yeah, yeah. And Fatima was pointing to like similarities of of like being in. Uh, was it North North Carolina or South Carolina and like recognizing like language or names or similarities uh, to to Senegalese or Wolof um, you know like thing you know phrases Um, so there was that I think that point is 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 interesting yeah yeah and the nation building part you know I you know I I talked about it touched on it a bit in class and um, I think about this a lot. It's, I mean, for me, it's one of the difficulties in assessing, say, the sort of task of nation building in Latin America and the Caribbean has a, I don't know what you would call it, almost like a quantitative problem mm. for me in the sense of Latin American countries are just much, much bigger. Oh. Right? They have much more land, right? Urban centers, mm. 
mm. that are more expansive and and you know you know massive swaths of farmland and desert and you know Caribbean islands are are their islands um, but along with that the um, fact that Caribbean islands have not been independent very long you know which mm. ones I mean some are not independent <laughs> so you oh, know yeah. Martinique and Guadeloupe are still part of France for example uh, Virgin Islands are part of either the United States or British Empire mm. um, yeah. you know Puerto Rico is not independent oh, um, yeah. and uh, so there's that you know the newness of the Caribbean as independent islands outside of Haiti um, is one thing um, you know, and whereas Latin America is, is you know, that had independence uh, much, much earlier. I mean, which is about a lot of things, it, one of which is my transition. But one of those things is, um, just the Spanish and Portuguese just gave up on empire. I mean, they, they, <laughs> they were committed. I mean, Keanu talks about it, right? They were committed to monarchy, yeah. and that's just the thing that that mm. sunk them. And they wanted to, mm. to, to. To establish monarchical monarchical power across the continent, I mean continent of Europe, uh, rather than um, you know France and, and England who competed for the world, rather than for Europe, um, you know, and and uh, in that way we're able to harness the imperial possibilities of capitalism in really special ways. Mm. But to the homogenization question and the creolization question, I do think that the there's something about our political imaginary and the way it plays out you know it's again with the naturalization of race mm. is that the fact that Europe uh, that uh, Latin American countries were in terms of leadership largely if not near exclusively helmed by white Europeans right mm. despite not being Europeans right they're they're now Americans but they're still white I mean it's like the United States it's like we're not Europeans but we inherit that the 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 multiracial democracy right that then is able to subjugate all of its minorities precisely because uh, you know it's not a minority necessarily in latin america all the latin american countries but that subjugation of 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 non-white peoples mm -hmm. as part of the e like political ecosystem that came from mm -hmm. colonialism so you just redeploy it right that same way that that plantation economies end up just reproducing the structure of slavery uh, just under uh, different conditions. But in the Caribbean, you don't have that. You don't have that homogeneity. You don't have the natural, quote, naturalness of white leadership. Uh, it's newer. It's smaller. But also, I do really think that there's something about the homogenous. It's a weird thing to say, the homogenization of composite culture. Um, right. That is that, you know, when when Glissant in po Introduction to a Poetics of, of the Diverse says, you know, what, um, you know, 95% of Martinicans speak French, but 100% speak Creole. Yeah. Mm. Right. There is this sense of one's own, uh, one's nation's unicity is exactly in its linguistic formations that are different than others. Right. And what does that mean in terms of state formation in the sort of first 60 years after independence? Yeah. I think has to be different than the hegemony of a European language that's gone completely uncontested in, in, uh, in Latin America that then combines actually, I think, quite seamlessly uh, with um, uh, with the idea idea of white leadership. Mm. It's just the naturalness of of 
of colonial ecosystems. So in that way, the coloniality of language, maybe, yeah. <laughs> is part of the coloniality yeah. of power. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, wow. That's always the argument in the Caribbean against Creole being the national language yeah. as well. How would you communicate with Europe? Right. right. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I like that a lot because I was thinking like, yeah, Keanu who talks about like the political economy of slavery and the plantation economy being different in Latin America than in other contexts. And I think you're pointing to that. And then also like thinking of this language question because it gets back to that point of like knowing how like whatever animals think through their scent through smelling um is because it's like can we only experience things through language and our relationship Mm. to the world through language which is like based in certain senses and not others like prioritizing sight um depending on i guess your worldview or like epistemology um but yeah i really like this idea of language the the kind of (laughs) like holdover of European language as like the, um, the, the colonizing, like the, the site of coloniality. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Cause it makes, yeah. You know, just, I think it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just worth, <laughs> worth focusing on, but, but yeah. yeah, to say that, like, yeah, if we experience the world through language or if, or if that's one of the colonial, one aspect of coloniality that is like, it prioritizes, a discursive relationship to the world than those elements around mm. like again i keep coming to the bats because i think bats are really cool but like the <laughs> question of the bat which is like you know echolocation um a mammal that mm-hmm. can talk through sound waves is like become something different um that i think is really cool um and yeah um I was gonna say something else, but I sort of lost my train of thought there. <laughs> but yeah, oh, yeah the question is language. I have to say that you're getting more me more and more interested in Zakia's book. You know, as we <laughs> as we get into this, like you know, animal human becoming post mm-hmm, all of mm-hmm. these things. Yeah, because she eventually the colonial- gets into the like question of epigenetics and ge- the genome and all this stuff, and I kind mm-hmm. of, to be honest that lost me a little bit but i need to like i need to, like <laughs> something that you can't really you need to like be you know you need i mean need some hand holding there but the other day we we're talking about like the inheritors Seriously. of like spillers and other traditions and i think she's she's probably one of them carrying that yeah. forward. and i think thinking about that the colonial though you know what what bears the colonial what bears in terms of like carrying and the burden of the coloniality of power, like being able to discern those is so important because it gets to, you know, that's why I paired these essays, it gets to the structure of the sociogenic principle. And language is absolutely a critical piece, Mm. if not the critical piece of the sociogenic principle Mm. that if, you know, and it bears the coloniality of power there. And so no acquisition of language and no practice of language in everyday life is going to be um, excluded from questions of the coloniality of power, resistance to it, or or um, expressions of it. And you know that's that's why I think Creole, the question of Creole and Creolization and glissant, just continues to be so important 
because it whether it's a sort of a an alternative path or a sort of break in the system or whatever we want to call it or is it just a, a a first question i think it really just brings into relief for me stakes of of all of these discussions because people will say you know well if he's you know if these folks start writing in creole then what are we going to how are we going to read them right they will have to be translated and we'll have again when we talk about Ngugi's book in the last week it's again going to come back mm-hmm. we're going to revisit this theme in such important ways but translation i mean an element of translation is homogenization and blending into the coloniality of power it doesn't have necessarily have to be perhaps it exposes a rupture in that but nevertheless the fact that if if i was to say yeglisant's yeah, wrote in creole and then you say oh can i get a translation is a sort of interesting mm. like thing to detect. I mean that's what I would say. So I'm you know mm. and then yeah. How do we process that in terms of the coloniality of power just at the level of the exchange of ideas? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Wow. Wow. So I'm yeah. sitting in this office full of books that all of a sudden just feels like some sort of colonial like museum. It's <laughs> 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 all these <Yeah>. translations. <laughs> Yeah, I remember because I asked you for the English translation of Poetic Intention. I was like, dang. You're like, I can't give you the original. I'm like, I don't. And I was, I was making a joke. I would use Google Translate. He was like, no, please don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I really, yeah, this thing about language. Mm. Yeah, because I, because not only have I heard that, um, that, these that the that the Caribbean like the creolization how would they communicate with their uh g- colonial country but like also like how would they be able to keep up like curriculum wise since the language keeps on changing um and I'm also thinking about like how in like but in school in the United States we learn like Spanish Spanish in, in from Spain like the vosotros and all that stuff and how I really alienated all the Latin American I remember like all my friends mm-hmm. who were um Spanish speaking from the Americas they're like uh like they're like they still and I think most of them like struggled with it because like this is not the type of language I use so I'm thinking about even then like how uh, how the violence occurred there because again like they hated Spanish classes even though they were like I speak I'm a native right, speaker all that right. stuff so I'm really thinking about like yeah like what you said James like language is like the site of coloniality and these and these holdover language languages even at the moment yeah. we're proliferating our language yeah. languages yeah. exactly <laughs> literally yeah it's pretty terrifying and it just that's yeah. too that it's like it has to be knowable like the sense of like oh just we'll just get a translation it's like well that that presumes that we need it we need the we we have the ability to know it through through mm. that through that process of of translation that we wouldn't need mm-hmm. to actually know anything about a culture's world view or history or traditions or anything as long as it's like rendered into something transparent for human <laughs> for for white i guess for white like consumption uh which is like you know they have those thing like there's an app that where you just like hold up your phone and it translates like road signs and stuff um if you're in a yeah. different country um and so that that idea is like well that the world can be knowable but you don't need to actually um inhabit it in like relationality to other people that you can just 
proceed mm. without ever changing your habits or behaviors and expect that the world will kind of shape to your wishes. Wow. Which is itself, of course, completely embedded in imperialism because that is most emphatically not the immigrants' experience in the United States. You know, right. <laughs> whereas, uh, or even a tourist, you know, um, I, you know, I, I think about that all the time when I'm a tourist in other countries and and I'm just like looking for somebody who can help me with English so I can make a purchase. We just never see that here. Yeah, mm. you know, I I, I I so rarely see. A tourist who's just like, no idea, right? Right. Um, but that the so the no the way knowability is folded into you know all kinds of things on the sort of map of empire is really interesting, um, and also the way that certain forms of language ignorance could be points of pride and points of shame, right? Right. You know? Um, you know, one might be really ashamed of not knowing French in. Um, in Paris, and not being ashamed at all in Ayacucho to not understand Quechua, yeah, right, mm. and instead maybe think like, oh, I'll brush up on my Spanish mm -hmm. or something, mm -hmm. you know. Mm. So, I mean, this is where you know, in thinking about translatability, you know, not to turn this into a to a, a seminar on translation, but I mean, translation and coloniality is so interesting that I, I mean, obviously, I love. Glissant's insistence on opacity, but also the way opacity doesn't block us from contact. Mm. And I think in these moments, what we're talking about is is so connected to, you know, discerning opacity and making space for opacity even in these points of, of translatability and exchange. And what does it mean to build it in rather than opacity to be like a like a remainder? Because I think we often will say that about translations. Oh, if something's lost in translation, and then the idea is, well, it's gone, rather than, mm. oh, you know, what would it mean to make space in my own discourse, my own thinking, and my own reading practices, my own thinking practices for those moments of opacity, rather than simply attending to what's knowable and what's what's imminent. Mm. I mean, it's, it's an ethical question, but it's an ethical question with enormous political consequences. Yeah. Mm. Well, we are uh, at f almost at 55 minutes, so nice. maybe we ought to wrap up. Mm. But there's so much more to talk about, you know. Yeah. It's, that's the other thing is, like, as each of these conversations go, we've built, like, in the as a class, like, so much uh, critical theory vocabulary. It's mm -hmm. hard to not sort of go back through mm -hmm. all right. of these, mm -hmm. but, you know, and all of thinking about influence and opacity and, and coloniality of parasite or, you know, could go all uh, the way back yeah. to the first couple yeah. of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> But I appreciate you all making time. This is totally interesting, and uh, I think we have made the case uh, for people, at least, what is it, nine of us, for people to read more uh, Anibal Quijano and Sylvia Winter, and that's mm. never a bad thing. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Okay. We'll take care, you guys. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you.